Thank you, Matthew. Uh, I want to invite our children's to children, our children's, <laughs> our children. Uh, English is a funny word, funny language, isn't it? Children to children's church. Um, and uh, just while they're going, we read through the end of chapter two, but we're only going to do two verses this morning. So um, don't, don't fear that, man, we're going to be here for two hours as we have to cover all that stuff. Um, so let's open us in a word of prayer. Lord, what a tremendous statement we just sang, that all I have is Christ. And Lord, that sounds like all, all I have is $1.50, but Lord, if we have Jesus, we have everything. We have this life, we have the life to come. We have all things in him. So Lord, what a wonderful truth. I pray that you'd sink that into our hearts and souls, Lord, that we would be content to know that all we have is Christ. Because if all we have is Christ, we have all. And Lord, I want to pray for um, our sister in the faith, our, our mother in the faith, Jeannie. She is uh, uh, now gone and uh, living with her son. Father, we pray that you would keep her and that you would, um, Lord, you would continue to feed her faith, strengthen her soul. And Lord, as, uh, as many years as you have appointed for her, Lord, that she would remain strong in the faith, courageous in the faith and that she would speak truth and love. Lord, would you show her more of yourself, even this week, even right now, Lord, we ask in Christ's name. And Father, we want to pray for our brother Daniel in uh, New Jersey as he is undergoing chemotherapy. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the shrinkage that they've seen in the tumor or in the, the cancer. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that that would continue. Lord, we pray for his upcoming surgery to uh, um, install the, the um, pump uh, for the chemotherapy and, and uh, the work that they'll do on, on the other parts while they've got him open. Uh, Lord, we, we're optimistic for Daniel's future. Uh, I, I don't think you're done with him yet here on earth. Uh, but Lord, we pray for him in the meantime, that you would sustain him. And Lord, that he would have opportunity to see once again that all he has is Christ. And that that is more than sufficient. So bless him in his understanding of that and his faith in that and his belief in that. And I pray that that would spill out to your church that uh, Calvary E.V. Free would benefit from um, the renewed faith, the renewed strength that you give him, even in his weakness. And uh, Lord, that the church there might be revived uh, as Daniel is revived through the preaching and the, the hearing of your word, through the work of your spirit. And Father, we pray again for the war in Ukraine. Uh, Lord, we pray for the Christians who are uh, ministering there, who are in the nations surrounding Ukraine and offering assistance with the refugees. Uh, Lord, we pray for the Christians here and around the world who are sending money and support and uh, prayers and support. And Lord, we pray that uh, your church would shine brightly in a very dark situation. Lord, give us, give them relief, we pray, um, and the war soon. Father, I pray for um, Vladimir Putin that you would change his heart and mind about this invasion. And Lord, grant him the grace to back down. Um, He's, he's very large on the world stage right now, and it can be hard to admit being wrong and defeat. And so, Lord, that would be a, an extra measure of your grace. And so we pray that you would uh, do that because, Lord, we trust that you are active in the affairs of men, that you rule in the councils of uh, the nations, and that you are able to set up and take down empires as you desire. And so, Lord, we're counting on that. We pray that you would do that now. And Lord, we pray also as we turn now to your word, Lord, would you show us what it means to live as exiles, to live as sojourners, as pilgrims, as resident aliens in this land. 
and be faithful to Christ. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. So there's a little book. It's not on the book table. It may wind up out there. This is pretty good. It's called Foreign to Familiar. And uh, the introduction to the book, the preface to the book, is, tells a really interesting story. Uh, the author is Susan Lanier, and she tells about a brief conversation she had with some co-workers. Uh, Sarah grew up in Israel, and she experienced both Jewish and Arab cultures. And so she says, in the Jewish culture, you say what you think. It's direct, and you know where you stand with people. Very clear, straightforward, this is it. She goes on and says, in the Arab culture, on the other hand, that's more indirect. It's all about friendliness and politeness. If offered a cup of coffee, I say no thank you. And she goes on to explain how you have to say no three or four or five times. And then she says, you're supposed to refuse the first time, for first few times. It's the polite thing to do. And her coworker, oh, and then what happens is the, the waitress come, or the uh, hostess comes over and pours you coffee and you drink it. So you just continue to say, no, 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 I can't. And then you drink your coffee. And so her coworker says, well, um, what are you supposed to do if you don't want coffee, if you really don't want the coffee? And she said, there are idioms you can use to say that you wouldn't for any reason refuse their kind hospitality. And at some point in the future, you will gladly join them in coffee. But at this moment, you really can't. And so that makes sense to them. That's, oh, you really don't want coffee. Okay. But you have to refuse it a number of times. Now, at this point, the other coworker who was Lebanese interrupted. And she said that she didn't know saying no was not normal. That was a, a, an amazing thing to her. She said, I've been lonely since moving here. She'd been in America eight years and she's been lonely since moving here. And now I know why. When people in the office would ask me if I wanted to go to lunch, I would say no to be polite, fully expecting them to ask me again. And when they didn't and left without me, I thought they didn't really want me to come along and had only asked out of politeness. In my culture, it would have been far too forward to say yes the first time. And so she finished by saying, for this reason, I've had few American friends all these years, and now I know why. This is a book about different cultures and different cultural expressions. And so what we're going to see here is, is we're at this pivot point in the book of, uh, in the book of First Peter. Uh, what Peter's going to do in these two short verses is he's going to kind of summarize what he's touched on before, and then he's going to tell us and uh, going forward, how we're going to live, how we're supposed to live as, as exiles in this world. So you heard what Matt read about submission and respect and those kind of things. What well, continues on into chapter three, we just cut it off early. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, the way I want to approach this is, is I'm going to look at it a little bit differently. I'm going to go backwards. See, what Peter does is he gives us opposition. He explains the opposition. He explains to us the challenge, and then he shows us the goal of what we're supposed to do as, as exiles in this land. And so I wanna look at them in reverse order this morning. Um, I wanna start with the goal, which is the last part of uh, verse 12, and then look at the challenge and then look at the opposition. So the goal at the end of verse 12 is that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. So the, the goal of this primarily and first, the, the, the thing that we're supposed to do as exiles, it's the glory of God. That's what our goal is. That's what our aim is. And so he talks about that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. So what does he mean on the day of visitation? Now, I've always assumed that that was the final judgment, that we will live righteous lives before the pagans, and then at the, at the final judgment, we and God will be justified. So on the day of visitation, that's what that would be. But here's the problem with, with that is visitation doesn't always mean judgment. 
it's it's talking about some different things. So I think where I got that idea from was from, for example, Exodus 14, um, when God is talking about going to the Red Sea and the, um, the Egyptians following him. In Exodus 14, verses 17 and 18, he says, and I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in the Red Sea after them, that is Israel. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So I always thought that, that getting glory was God defeating his enemies. And, and on the day of visitation, that's the ultimate defeat. That's when he ultimately defeats his enemies. It's the day of judgment. The problem is the, the scriptures don't always present visitation. God's visitation is a bad thing. Uh, sometimes it's for judgment, but sometimes his day of visitation is a blessing. So think of Abraham. Abraham is sitting out on his, uh, his, his tent, and he sees three men come by, and he, in, he, he does this cultural thing. Oh, please come in and just you know, have a little morsel of food, and then he prepares this huge feast. That's, that's kind of a cultural thing. And he has him come in, and he sit down, and he, he shows this great hospitality to him. That was actually God visiting him. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah? So it was a blessing to Abraham because he says, I can't hide this from you, but it was a judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So God's visitation is not always a bad thing. Uh, uh, what we should say is God, there's a day when God is going to visit them. Now, is that for good or for bad? Well, the rest of the context should tell us that. So the rest of the context of that, that sentence is that on that day of visitation, they will glorify God. So does that mean um, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord? Is that talking about glorifying God? Well, the truth is throughout the scripture, glorifying God is never spoken of as a forced thing. Now, there are times when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess whether they want to or not. But to explain it as glorifying God is, is never put forward that way in the New Testament. So what I think it's talking about on the day, the, 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 um, the day of visitation when they will glorify God, I think it's talking about that these people might be converted. That there's a chance that what this day of visitation is, is God may come to them and that they will glorify him, not in their defeat, because notice he said, I will get glory over, not I will be glorified by. That this glory would be them turning to God and saying, you were right. This is amazing. So what would lead to that is our good behavior when they see your good deeds, that that's what they will do. Now, that idea that seeing our good deeds would lead people to believe is not foreign. It, it sounds a little hokey, and there's more to be said about it for sure. But just off the, the, the tip of it, uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, your Father who is in heaven. So by seeing our good works, it can lead the, the unbeliever to give glory to God. And Peter himself in a little bit is going to tell us, this is at the beginning of chapter three, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So it's possible that Peter is telling us to live lives honorable, honorably before, or have our conduct be honorable before the, the Gentiles, so that they could come to believe in Jesus Christ so that they might come. So whatever it is, however we put it together, the ultimate goal here is God's glory, that God may be glorified among the nations. So that's, that's the goal. What's the challenge? 
Well, the challenge is that first part of that, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak, uh, speak against you as evildoers, they will glorify God in the day. So here's the challenge. Our conduct must be honorable and they're gonna still speak about us as evildoers. So we're gonna do the right thing and they're still gonna speak about us as evildoers. So don't forget our, our deeds, our good deeds fit into this. The challenge though is to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And here's, here's the issue. We're not part of this culture. Well, we are, but we're not. <laughs> we have, we're actually citizens of two different realms, right? We are citizens of the kingdom of God. That's why the, the uh, section begins that uh, we are sojourners and pilgrims. We're aliens, resident aliens here. So we, we are here, but we're not really here. We're missionaries here. So kind of like the illustration at the beginning, if a missionary goes into an Arab culture and somebody says, hey, would you like some coffee? And they go, yeah, sure. This is an American way to do it. That would be highly offensive. That would be presumptuous that you just demand coffee when you come in like this. You have to say no four or five times before they just pour it anyway. So that's, that's kind of the cultural differences we're talking about. There is the kingdom of God and then there's the land we live in. And so here's the struggle. When it comes to the two, the two different, the, uh, two different cultures that we're living in, God's commands are ultimate. We cannot violate them. We cannot compromise on them. But what Peter's telling us is living in accordance with that as a sojourner and an exile, how do we keep our conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable? Well, we don't do it by compromising anything God has said, but there are things in our culture that are gray. They're not so black and white. It's not just, I have to do it this way. So is it wrong to say, no, really, I don't want any coffee. I can't, I can't take any. I wouldn't impose on you. Is that wrong? Well, it's lying. It's, of course, wrong. It's, is it lying in the, that context? The, the person you're talking to knows exactly what you mean by that. They know exactly what's going on. So how, then, do we keep our, our, our conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, the Gentiles, the not us, the people who are not in the kingdom yet? How do we keep it, it honorable? And in the God's commands, that's easy. You just don't violate what God has told you. But the gray areas get hard. And so when it comes to keeping our conduct honorable according to God's commands, we have to turn to the scripture and say, what does the Bible say? What is God telling us in his word? And how do I conduct my life according to that? So things like sexual ethics, use of wealth, humility, those kind of things, those are, those are standards that we, we can't compromise on. But there are other areas where it's a little more difficult. Um, if you want to have it a clear picture, I think the clearest illustration of what it means to live honorably, according to God's standards, Micah 6.8. Everybody knows this. You're probably hearing a little song in your head. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? There you go. You want to, you want to follow God's standards? That's a nice summarization of it. That's not bad. But what about areas where it's not defined, not clearly defined? Or before we get to that, let's take a look at what about the scriptures? There are some things in the scriptures. How do I know if what the scripture is, ex is explaining is cultural versus God's standard? So we said with Abraham and God showing up with the angels, Abraham says, oh, let me prepare a little food and get a little water. And he brings out, you know, a whole feast. 
Is that what we're supposed to do when we have somebody over for dinner? Let me just bring you a grape and, and a little cup of water and, you know, and then you put out this lavish feast. No, that, that's a cultural thing. Here's the question, my friends. How do we know what's cultural in the scripture and what's not? That's a struggle, and that's really hard. And so what I'm about to do is get in a lot of trouble because I'm going to talk about some controversial subjects, and so it should you know, get everybody mad at me by the end. Somebody's going to be mad at me about something by the end. What I want to do is pick up two different issues that the scripture brings up and ask the question, is it cultural or is it a principle that God expects us to obey? So the first one is head coverings. Should you cover your head? And the second one is submission to authority. So head coverings. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 7, it's a little bit long, but stick with me. Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For, her man, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Piece of cake, right? Easy to understand. I can just press on from here. We got to unpack that a little bit. There's a lot going on in there. And I'm not going to answer everything. <laughs> That's one of the ways I'll get in trouble. So here's the question. He's talking, let's focus on the, uh, on the head covering thing. So is it okay, or are you required, ladies, are you required to put something on your head when you're in the church? Men, can you show up in church with a hat on? Now, I got to tell you the truth. 22 years in the military, I get twitchy when people show up with hats on inside. <laughs> I just had that drilled into my head. You cross the threshold, the hat comes off. And when it's in church, because of a cultural understanding of this, I get really twitchy when, people, when guys show up in church with a hat on. I'm like, you, you can't do that. But notice I never get upset when a woman doesn't have something sitting on top of her head. Now, I grew up Catholic, and so the ladies would come with a little doily on top of their head. The question is, is that a cultural thing or is that something that God expects us to do? And the real question is, how do you tell the difference? Because there are good, honest Christians who are struggling to obey the word who will wear a doily on their head when they come into church. That's just what they'll do because they believe that's what this is saying. And so what I want to share is how do I parse this out and say, it's okay, ladies, to not put something on your head. I notice nobody's, you know, reaching for a, a communication card to set on top of their head real quick. But the, how do we know is really the issue? How do we tell the difference? And so here's a question that, that you have to ask. Is there an overarching biblical theme of head covering for women? Is, is there a storyline throughout the Bible that condemns or, 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 or uh, admires women for covering or not covering their head? So think about this for a second. If a woman covers her head, what would our culture think about that? If, if you see a woman at the store and she's got a little doily on her head, what do you think? Amish, Mennonite, very strict religious sect, that kind of thing. If you see a woman with nothing on top of her head or short hair or even shaved head, what do you think? Sinead O'Connor looked okay with shaved head. She kind of looked, you know, she was a pretty lady anyway. So, um, you know, didn't really worry about that. Or you could look at somebody like that and think, oh, that poor person, they're probably going through chemo. 
and, and that's why they've, they have, don't have any hair. It, it's not communicating something that is biblical, something, a storyline that goes to the whole scripture. So in, in generally in speaking, when our culture sees these things, it's not interpreting it the way the Bible is interpreting it. So what does the Bible mean? Well, think about this for a second. Um, Sarah and Mary are held up in the Bible as being um, good, godly, honest women. They, they, were, they were women who were after God's own heart. Jezebel and I forget who else I wrote down. Um, Delilah. Jezebel and Delilah, on the other hand, were not honorable and good women. Is there any place in the scriptures that says Jezebel didn't cover her head? Is there any place that says Delilah had short hair? Now, now with Delilah, it gets complicated because hair was involved, but it wasn't her hair. It was, it was Samson's. So when we look through the scripture, we go, okay, well, there's not an overarching theology of head covering. So women, you don't have to necessarily cover your hair. What did Paul is saying something though? What is he saying to us? Well, look what he's saying. Go back and understand what he's saying here. He's, he's talking about authority. He's talking about the ranks of authority. God is at the top. Jesus is below God. Men are below Jesus. Women are below men. Now, that doesn't mean in worth or value. Jesus became like us in all things except for sin. What it does mean is there's layers of authority. And so what, what the putting a, a, a doily on your head could show is, if you understand what it means, I am under the authority of someone else. That, that's what it was. A friend of mine one time online joked, you know, if you want to obey that, what you have to do is get a baseball cap that says under my husband's authority on it. That, that would be the, the head covering that would work because people would be able to read it and go, that's what that means. Okay, I get that. Now, Peter is going to talk more about this, this layer, this structure of men and women, and there's a whole bunch more to be said about it. Um, chapter three, that's what the beginning section is about, is the relationship between, between husbands and wives. But I just want to hold that out there right now. Covering your head is a sign of being under, submitting under authority in the Corinthian culture. We don't see it anywhere else. So what would that look like in our culture? I don't know that we have a sign for that. I don't know that we have, you know, maybe a t-shirt that says submitting to my husband or something, but that, that seems weird too. So then what about the other place that, um, the other issue that I want to bring up, authority in the church. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 2. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Is that cultural or is that something that is overarching throughout the scripture? There are good, honest, um, God-loving, God-fearing men and women who believe the Bible, who are born-again Christians, who think that that is a cultural expression. And the explanation for that is, is Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus. Ephesus has a giant temple there to the goddess Artemis. And the Artemis, yeah, Artemis, sorry, Artemis. And the, the Artemis cult was ruled by women, and these women could be very dictatorial, they could be very abusive, that kind of stuff. So the, the understanding of this is, if we put it in the context of the Ephesian culture, then I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. That actually is a, a word that only appears here in the Bible. And it seems to say abusive authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Why? Because culturally speaking, that's what Artemis's cult was doing. They were, they were ruling, and they were just being overbearing and that kind of stuff. So is that a good read? Well, first of all, historically speaking, as far as we can tell, that's true. 
is that the interpretation of this verse? Does that mean that when it says I don't permit um, women to teach or exercise authority, that it's not universal? How do we know? <laughs> How can we tell? That's the problem. So the, I think the way that we can, we can tell is we can go back and ask that question. Is there an overarching biblical storyline? Is there an overarching biblical theology of women being in submission to their husbands? And yes, that transcends just the, the situation in Ephesus. It's, it's shown up in a number of different places. And that's why I think what Paul does next in 1 Timothy 2 is he goes to creation. So the next thing he says is, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So it doesn't mean that it's order of creation is, is the key here. I don't think order of creation is really the point, although it's, it fits into it, because what was created before Adam? Critters. <laughs> Do I have to submit to a cow? <laughs> that, that doesn't make any sense. But listen to, to uh, Genesis 2. Uh, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the order of creation issue here is not Adam was created first chronologically, Adam was created first, he was put in the garden, and he was given the law of garden. The law of the garden is don't eat from that tree, period. That was his role. We don't see anywhere where God talks to Eve and explains that rule to her. She's then created, and then we don't get a whole bunch of detail, but it looks like it was Adam's responsibility to tell his wife, hey, here's the rule of the garden. Here's the law. Don't eat from that tree. But we know she got it wrong. <laughs> when the serpent came and talked to her, she said, we're not allowed to eat it or touch it. That's not the law of the garden. And so Paul goes on to say, so she was deceived. She was greatly deceived, but Adam wasn't. So when we look at this, we go, okay, so Paul is saying, I don't allow a woman to exercise authority or teach a man because of creation, because it fits into this storyline throughout the scripture of what men are supposed to do. And by the way, guys, don't get too proud. The reason we're in this boat is because we screwed it up at the beginning because we didn't tell our wife the right thing at the very beginning. And so God is saying, keep doing it till you get it right. So it's, it's not a matter of pride as we're so smart and you women are so weak and easily deceived. That, that's a horrible way to look at that. Where, Tim, where Paul goes with Timothy next then is he says, I don't allow a woman to exercise authority or teach a man. And then chapter three, here's the, here's the qualifications for the leaders of the church. This is what the leaders of your church will look like. And the, the requirements for the elders, the men who teach and lead and, and shepherd the flock, it's male. All of it is male. You can't have a woman who's the husband of one wife. It doesn't work that way. Well, in our culture, you can now, but biblically speaking, that doesn't, that's not right. When we get to deacons, though, deacons are servants. And right in the middle of deacons is, here's what women deacons are supposed to be like. So the, the teaching, the authority office is there. So if we pull all this together, then we go, okay, so the thing on the head is a cultural thing. It was a cultural expression in Corinth, and it made sense to the culture around them. If a woman shaved her head or had short hair, that meant something to that culture. For us, it's just a style choice. But the issue then is authority. 
And authority is something from First, or First Timothy chapter two that is transcultural. It goes beyond that. It goes, it goes further than just putting something on top of your head. So in the end, I wanna say, if you put something on your head, that's cool. That's fine. Just understand that your culture is not gonna understand what you mean by that. And there's probably fairly few people in the church who's gonna get it too. What we have to do, if we're gonna live lives that are honorable before the Gentiles is we have to submit to authority. And boy, isn't that where he goes next? So be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The, the beginning of the verse that I'm not preaching. That's what he's talking about. That's where he goes with this. So then how can we live lives that are honorable before the Gentiles? Well, first of all, it's complicated. It's gonna be difficult. It's gonna be really challenging for us. The biggest issue that we face that's not described in the scriptures is we were born and raised in a culture that was predominantly influenced by Christianity. And since that time, that culture has been drifting further and further away from Christianity. So if you're a missionary and you're plopped down in this foreign culture, you know how to figure this out. It's really blatantly obvious to you, this is different than what we would do. But if you're standing in that culture and that culture then begins to drift, it can be challenging to stand in the middle of it and go, how do I live a life that's honorable by God's definition before the Gentiles according to their culture? How do I do that? And it's hard. It's going to be challenging to us. So first of all, sexual ethics, I mentioned earlier. The Bible is very clear. Marriage is defined as the union between one man and one woman. It was so from the very beginning in the creation of the Garden of Eden. It has been codified throughout the scriptures. That's what marriage is. In our culture, though, since at least the 1960s, sexual ethics have been changing. They've been drifting. And so now today, sexual ethics are really pretty far from where we are. And so when we take a stand and we say, I'm going to live honorably before these Gentiles, I'm going to stand by what the scripture tells me sexual ethics are. My sexual ethics are marriages between one man and one woman. Sex is reserved for that cultural expression, for that, that union between a man and a woman. It is not used for entertainment or public display. That's, what sex, that's the sexual ethic that I must abide by. That's, that's what I must do. And it's going to be very hard because everything around us is going in a different direction on that. So we're going to look like freaks. That's what we're called to do. Another thing that, that's changing in our culture is since about the turn of the century, and I mean the, the 21st century, um, socialism in America has become kind of cool. And socialism is not so much an ethical issue as it is a political one, but here's the thing. When it comes to how we live lives with each other, um, Christians are commanded to charity, to love our neighbor as ourselves, um, to do justice, to walk humbly, those kinds of things. And so as these folks who aren't familiar with what Christianity is want to embrace a socialistic approach where they're providing for everybody, the state's going to provide for everybody, we could wind up looking good in their eyes as we do what God is telling us to do. We're going to care for other people. We're going to help the homeless. We're going to do these things. We're, we're called to charity, to generosity. And so there might be times when they look at that and go, hey, that looks pretty good. Now, if you put the word Christian on it, especially evangelical, it's going to get condemned because obviously those, those tags are, are evil. But if we just do what Jesus has said, that, that could come across as commendable. So there's times when we, when we might line up with the culture and the culture would go, hey, that, that's actually pretty nice. Just don't tell them you're an evangelical because who knows what that means anymore. 
The other issue is uh, abortion became legal and the law of the land in 1973. But God's word is clear about protecting the most vulnerable amongst us, especially widows and orphans. And so we have a commitment to the unborn. They are the most vulnerable. They can't speak for themselves. They can't exercise any rights. They're, they're just in their mother's womb. So CareNet and other crisis pregnancy centers across the, uh, the nation are doing great work to not just prevent abortion, but to provide for uh, husband and wife, men and woman, mom and dad, and the baby after the baby's born. So our culture wants to caricature us in our, our stances pro-life as being only caring about, you know, don't have an abortion and then after that, good luck. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. The reality on the ground amongst Christians, that is not how it's working. That's not how we've, we've behaved. We are actually fully pro-life. We want to help these folks. And so there's this, this almost delusional understanding of what we mean by pro-life. So Margaret Atwood's Handmaiden's Tale is, is practically paranoid about abortion rights and, and how tyrannical people who oppose that want to be. We're going to look really bad if they're going to interpret us that way. But if we do more than just say, hold the sign that says I'm pro-life, but we actually go out and do things that are pro-life, then we're living more honorably among the Gentiles. So when somebody says, how can you be pro-life? What are you doing about that? Well, we support Care Night and we've done this and this and this to help women and we're counseling people and that kind of stuff. That, that's where they get to the point where they can't call us evildoers, although they want to, or at least not honestly. So again, is it okay to say no to coffee? Is it okay to say no to coffee three or four or five times? Is it okay then to turn around and pour the coffee, even though they've said no? In our culture, probably not. If you go ahead and pour coffee after somebody said no, somebody's going to look at you like, what is wrong with you? In other culture, they're going to be like, oh, yes, well, join me. So we, we have to be aware of the culture. We have to be cognizant of where we're at, and we have to live lives that are honorable before them. Now, why? Why are we doing it? Don't forget the goal we covered at first. The goal is God's glory. The, the, the strength to obey your commands could not come from me. We're looking toward God, and we're saying, we want to live honorably amongst the Gentiles so that we will do things that when we tell them about who Jesus is, our lives will authenticate our message and they might turn and glorify you. Because your glory, your, your, your ultimate glory is our, our hope, our goal, what we're aiming for. So that's what we're called to do, is to live honorably before the Gentiles so that they might glorify God. But there's a huge opposition to it. And this is the beginning of verse 11. Why is it so hard to do this? And Paul or Peter begins, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There is a great conspiracy against your soul in all of this. It, it is the passions of the flesh are warring against you. Um, he said he calls us sojourners and exiles. And I've said before at the beginning of the book, I said exiles, probably not the best word because we're not in exile. The church can't go into exile. Um, the, the Israel was put into exile because they were unfaithful to God and he sent them out of the land. Well, we don't have a land. We have a whole planet. So we're not in exile. Um, the New American Standard says aliens and strangers. And I like that one. King James also says strangers and pilgrims. That's probably even better. That's, that's what's going on. So first of all, the opposition is this is not ultimately your home. This is a strange place. You're a missionary in a foreign field. And they have cultures and customs that are odd to us. 
because we're following Jesus Christ. Those customs and cultures will inflame the passions of the flesh. In other words, you have lived here for so long, and many of us have lived in that culture and in that, that situation, in those customs, before we became aliens and strangers. And so it's really easy for our flesh to just step back into that. The passions of the flesh can be inflamed by this. And even though we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and God has saved us, he's brought us through this, he has, he has made us new hearts, he hasn't fully redeemed us yet. We're waiting for the resurrection of the body. And so the passions of the flesh still reign. They still trouble us at times. And so Peter's urging is to abstain from them, to war against them as you struggle with them. So we're, we're sojourners and we're exiles. So we're going to be at odds. We're going to be at odds with our culture. We're going to be at odds with ourselves at times. They wage war against our soul. Our, our, our hearts have been made new. And so we stand out as odd even to ourselves. And, and we want to move away from that. So, but don't forget how Peter begins this. Peter begins this by saying, beloved. Beloved. Peter loves you. I love you. But more importantly, Jesus Christ loves you and God loves you. So when we look at this and we go, my, my flesh is fighting and, and it's a struggle and I'm wanting to get carried along with the tide of the, the culture, we hear ringing in our, in our ears, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So start with the truth that you are loved. And then from that, resist oppose the passions of the flesh from a position of being loved, not from a position of, if I don't do this well, God's not going to like me very much. God has already fixed his love on you. And that's the power that you need to wage war against the passions of the flesh so that you can live honorably before the Gentiles so that they might glorify God in the day. One last word on this, this glorifying God in the day. Our good lives will not convert somebody to Christ. We'll talk about this when we get to chapter three. But somebody is not going to look at you and go, oh, that's a very upright moral person. Jesus Christ must be Lord. He's probably God that come down from heaven, died for my sins, and I will do that because that person was so nice and gave me their parking spot. It doesn't work that way. What, what Peter is saying is part of the equation is live like that. Live the gospel that you believe so that when you use the words and say, Jesus came to die for sinners, sinners like me and sinners like you, and if you will simply trust in him, you can be born again. You can be made new. You can be loved by God. But it starts with what will, what will show the authenticity of that? Our good conduct, our honorable conduct before the Gentiles shows God has done something in this person. And perhaps you know people who have come to Christ and are radically different. Not all of us are. Some of us are, are pretty much the same because we were generally decent people to begin with. But there are some people who are so radically opposed. I just read this month in Christianity Today. It's a story of a woman who um, started writing New Age books. She started doing self-help, and then she kind of got pulled into New Age and started attending New Age conferences, and so she's writing these elaborate New Age books, and she has a 10-acre home on Hawaii because of this book writing deal that she's got. She has been just doing tons of this, and then she stumbled across the Bible, and God opened her eyes and opened her heart. And so she would go to conferences and she would say, you guys, I want you to know this book I wrote was totally wrong. And the only way that you're going to find what you want in life is through Jesus Christ. And they boot her out of the place. And so she has lost all that. She, this is an example of somebody who's radically changed by the gospel. 
But a lot of us grew up decent Americans, decent people, you know, in a decent household and pretty nice. But when we live in accordance with what we believe, that adds weight to the gospel so that God can be glorified. So that's what Peter is going to lead us through in the, in the coming weeks. He's going to take us through some different scenarios of what it means to live in submission to authority and why that would be honorable before the Gentiles. And so that's where we're going to go with this. Let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, I confess uh, before my brothers and sisters here in Christ, I don't always willfully and happily submit to authority. Um, sometimes I think I'm too smart or too right or have my rights to do that. And Lord, uh, help me to remember that to live honorably before the Gentiles would mean to recognize that there is authority over me and that I must submit. And um, Lord, help me not be more American than I am Christian in demanding my rights. Lord, my rights are rooted in who you are. And I will receive them someday, if not on this earth, then in, in, the, in the, the new heavens and the new earth. And so, Lord, as we move into this new section of First Peter, would you be working in our hearts and minds to wrestle with and to understand authority and honor and respect and to help us walk and to live before a nation that really doesn't seem to care what we think? And Lord, may our actions speak so loud that our words can't be ignored. Lord, we ask these all in Christ's name. Amen.